Arzi, we have always said that much like um, the Swedes and the Finns, if you meet an Easterner, there aren't too many you're not going to like. And did David Ling just prove us right because of that last podcast? I think that he absolutely did. And I know for sure because I see some of the statistics from this uh, project of ours. And the David Ling podcast is currently setting the bar for OHL stories. So I think, I think a couple of things are at play here. One is every Maritimer loves another Maritimer. So the entirety of the Atlantic provinces are probably listening or have listened. And two, Maritimers, especially the Islanders, are great people. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's wonderful. Thanks to everybody uh, out east who listened. Hopefully we gained a couple permanent listeners out of that project with David Ling. Um, the guy's a beauty. If you haven't listened to the podcast yet, make sure to go back and listen. And apologies for any uh, sound issues right now. We had some technical issues from the Rogers building with Mike Farwell. This is all done over Zoom. So bear with us. We're going to get that figured out. We have our technical op on it heading into next week. We promised that the story that you're about to hear uh, in this week's episode with a two-time Memorial Cup participant uh, has much better sound quality, but hopefully you can endure this level for now. Speaking of two-time Memorial Cup, I want to, before we get too far into this, I just want to say a uh, quick uh, stick tap and uh, thoughts of ours are with the family of the Windsor Spitfires and uh, of, with Bill Brown. He was a former OHL scout with the Spits, won two Memorial Cups, uh, recently lost his battle with cancer. Um, I worked with Brownie. Uh, up in Wingham when I was working small town radio in Ontario up in Wingham he was a uh, a sales rep for us he he did a lot of uh, coaching and managing in the lower junior ranks as well but Brownie would he'd be the first one to tell you that he won two memorial cups mostly because he'd wave his hands around a lot while he talked Um, but after when you Anyone who met Bill Brown remembered Bill Brown because he was very boisterous. Uh, He was just one of those people that was happy being in any part of life and especially around a hockey rink. Uh, He used to come up to the newsroom and he'd sit down and we would just, you know, shoot the shit on hockey for for hours because that's all he wanted to do was talk hockey. He would be asking about the OHL and about this junior player. And did you see this Bantam player? And I'm like, Brownie, no, I didn't. Like, I didn't drive to Exeter yesterday, you know. but uh, one of the good guys gone too soon. He was a bundle of personality and just a shout out to everybody that knew Bill Brown. Um, one of the good guys. You know, it kind of gets me, kind of gets me right in the feels when you talk about that, Chris, because it speaks to how tight the hockey community is, but particularly the junior hockey community. So we would see guys just like Brownie on a regular basis. In fact, the guest on this week's episode of OHL stories is a scout that we see an awful lot. We've had Jeff Dewey on this podcast before another one of those episodes that people talk about Loved the episode with Dewey. He's another guy that we've seen around the rinks and really become friendly with over the years. And we'll have more of these guys on and we'll talk to them when we return to the rinks. But uh, I just, I I can't think it's hard to think about losing another member of this little family that we're with. So definitely condolences to the Brown family and, and to the game who loses one of the, one of the characters that certainly loved it. And, and speaking of that game and the people that we usually see, uh, as I make a bit of a segue here, 
it's not lost on me, Chris, that we are releasing this podcast on the very week that the Ontario Hockey League had hoped it would be starting its 40-game season. But that did not happen on February the 4th. It did not. And are you surprised, Mike? (laughs) I am not surprised in the least. And quite frankly, I have become more and more pessimistic that we will see any kind of junior hockey formalized play this year, be it a tournament style, be it a bubble. I just don't think it's going to happen. I hate to say it, but I don't think it's going to happen. I know the, the, the further from uh, opening we, we move, I I'm with you when I think that I can't see a season at all. I'm still optimistic. I still want to think, you know, even if they throw a 25 game schedule out that starts April, May, they can get it done in a couple months. I'm hoping. I would love that. Just get a mini, mini little uh, uh, schedule out there and a, a mini season just to get some game action. I personally would love to see it. But as we move along throughout this year and we're seeing all these uh, new cases that are continue to climb in certain areas, we see the trouble with vaccinations. Um, we see the school issues. I don't have to tell, talk too far or too much about that to any parent. Um, I can't imagine that the government wants a third lockdown. So I think this lockdown we're in could be uh, stretched out longer. And I think that they're going to be very cautious about lifting any regulations they have in place right now, which means this OHL season continues to get pushed down the calendar even further. And let's look at it this way. Uh, Believe what you want from our illustrious elected officials, but the plan remains as we record this today, and I'm sure it won't change, that every Canadian who wants a vaccination will have one by the end of September. That coincides very nicely with when we traditionally start an Ontario Hockey League season. You're already shaking your head. You don't believe the vaccine timeline. I, I may not be the most optimistic in that regard either, but Listen, that's the messaging today. If we make that deadline, then it would be a very good time, I think, for the league just to pick up right where it left off in March of 2020, if you can believe it. Holy cow, it's been almost a year. I think I will be one of the last people vaccinated. Um, No past health issues, 35 years old, not at really high risk. Um, I think I'll be one of the last. And I, if I'm vaccinated by this point next year, I'm going to call it a win. Wow. Oh, yeah. You'll be. Well, they couldn't even get plan A wave done right for our long-term care people and our frontline workers. What makes you think they're going to get it right when there's a flood of people that just came from Walmart trying to get their shots? Come on. The long-term care people, they're in a home. You take the shots to them. Our frontline workers are much more mature and much more serious about this than people who are over stocking up on toilet paper. You expect those people to go and get their vaccinations done properly. Come on, get out of here. All right. I've got a three hour talk show every day to do this. So I'm going to, I'm not going any further down the rabbit hole with you, but I'm going to remain hopeful. I don't, I only get to talk to my dog. So this is the only time I speak with other people, not my girlfriend, my dog, or my family, and a couple buddies that we have a Snapchat group chat with. My, the Stray Cats. Shout out the Stray Cats. Um, but so this is actually good. I get maybe I should just call into your show every now and then on a rant and rave. Hey? Love to hear from you. Rant or rave yeah. every Monday from eleven till noon on five seventy news. Speaking of wanting to hear from you, if you, the listener, want to get in touch with us. 
Farwell and Pope. Make sure to reach out Farwell and Pope at gmail.com or on Twitter underscore Chris Pope or Farwell underscore OHL. And shout out to Matt who reached out through our Facebook page. You can find it at the Farwell and Pope podcast. Uh, Send us a note talking about rivalries. We'll get into that in just a minute. But last week, Chris, we were talking about, and I don't know if we did it on the podcast or it was, I think it was just texting back and forth, but I'm like, just, just give me a road trip, man. Like, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I just, I want to, I want to experience a road trip. I want to get on the bus. I want to go to a game. I want to call a game. Wouldn't you know, I had a guest going back to my talk show that I do uh, as a quote unquote day job. I had a guest on from Laurentian University, professor by the name of Thomas Merritt. It was actually a really interesting conversation. And you're going to know exactly where I'm going with this story when I tell you what he was on to talk about. And that is coffee. Ah. So here's a professor from Laurentian University in Sudbury. He's talking about genetically modified organisms and how they might, our appetite for GMOs might change if it could make a better cup of decaf coffee, because we all know decaf versus the high octane, et cetera. So interesting conversation about coffee in and of itself. But at one point in the conversation, he mentioned his local brewer and he had just picked up an espresso from there that morning when we were having our chat on the air. So I filed that to the back of my head. And when we finished the chat before I said goodbye, I'm like, Laurentian University, you're up in Sudbury. I sure hope when you say local brewer, you mean the old rock. Well, let me tell you, Professor Merritt was blown away. He's like, that's where I was. And forgive me, I want to say Carolyn Jim, but I bet I've got it wrong. But he, he named the owners by name. Wow. I can't do that. But he's like, how do you know about the old rock? That's exactly where I was to get my coffee this morning. I said, well, let me tell you about the old rock right there on Minto across from the venerable Sudbury Arena where you and I, Popper, make a point of paying a visit every time we make that one trip a year. But we go to the old rock while we're there. That was the spot of the very first coffee review we ever did. And I remember uh, talking to you that we had this, we were doing pregame videos and I had this idea of a pregame video and I wanted to do a joke on the coffee reviews. And then it took off. It was shared everywhere. People liked it. People were laughing. So we just kept it up when we were on the road whenever we could. And I think to this point, the old rock is the only stop we've had that has got a 10 out of 10. And I stand by the score. Everybody said it was a rookie score, um, but I was a rookie doing coffee reviews, so I had to give the rookie score. It is still the best cup of coffee I think I've ever had. And uh, I actually remember, was it last year or the year? Two years ago, I think. You were up in Sudbury, and I couldn't make the trip for whatever reason, and you brought me home a bag of uh, coffee from the old rock. I wish I would have got you to bring home a satchel. (laughs) That's what teammates do for each other. It's fantastic. You got me thinking, real quick tangent here, but we were talking at the beginning of this about the – David Ling podcast, uh, OHL stories episode being the, the most viewed and listened to to date because we post these things on YouTube as well. And I'm thinking that just looking at the traction that some of these things are getting, obviously you can listen wherever you get your podcasts, but if you want to, you want to see these players, these, these characters from the game, these are all recorded now. Uh, online posted to YouTube so you can see faces and see how people are doing these days. Watch Pope and I age in real time. But I'm thinking, you know, when we get back to doing our thing, there's room on the YouTube channel for coffee reviews. Yeah. Maybe some stuff while we're on the road. I'm I'm thinking we might even be able to, I'm going to have to check with the lawyers on this, but parts of our pregame show, things that are happening within the game to keep driving people to, you know, give them something fresh to look at as opposed to listen to when we're doing our broadcast. So 
keep it in mind and, and shoot us a note anytime of content you'd like to see farwell and pope at gmail.com i'm hoping that we can still uh record the podcast on youtube whenever we're on the road when we're doing interviews with people we set up the phone on a little uh tripod record it or if we're just sitting in the hotel room we'd have to hide the empties but i'm sure we could still throw it on youtube there's a lot of empties to hide some of those trips over there, there is a lot of empties matt as we said reached out via our facebook page the farwell and pope podcast he asked about rivalries and you and i have talked about this chris insofar as our hope and and we will make it happen at some point is getting two players on one show on opposite ends of a rivalry so for example a former Pete and a former Oshawa general on the podcast at the same time. I bring that up because when I think about rivalries and we will do more as this podcast wears on, but well, two things immediately pop to mind. First is the one I just mentioned. I think Oshawa Peterborough is probably the best rivalry that the Ontario hockey league has ever had. And then today I look at rivalries in the OHL and I kind of look at them like, London versus the other 19 hockey clubs, because that seems to be the way that it goes. But when we talk about rivalries, what comes to mind for you? Well, London for sure, but I, I wouldn't go all other 19. Are you sure I, about that? Yeah. I mean, think of, think of London Erie during Erie's real nice run. Think about London Windsor. Think yeah. London Sarnia is a great rivalry right now. And you're, you're proving my point. It's London and the other nine in the Western conference. I don't think the rivalry really is there as much in the East. Sure. Do you just hate London because they're always successful? Yes. Kingston hates London because of Max Domi. I'm just going to point yeah, out. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, there's reasons that Ottawa would hate London. There's reasons everyone hates London, but you have to respect it. It's like Tom Brady. Every, this Sunday at the Super Bowl, I bet you 98% of people are going to be cheering for the Kansas city chiefs. And it's because they're facing Tom Brady, but if Tom Brady wins, that 98% of people watching the game are going to go, ah, he's just so good. Like, you have to respect it. You have to respect it. London is what they are. They're successful every year. And, yes, they beat most hockey clubs. And that's why people hate them. So, yeah, the rivalry's there. And I think we were asked uh, not too long ago if London was still Kitchener's main rival. And that answer is simply yes. I think that – Guelph is a close second, but like, are you going to say that London is a better rival for Flint than Saginaw? No, I think it's Flint Saginaw. That rivalry is just so heavy. Um, but I think a lot of teams within conferences have rivals like Owen Sound Kitchener is a good rivalry. There's been blowouts on either sides over the year and physicality Kitchener and Sarnia. Let's just say they don't like each other, especially dating over the last, you know, four years. Um, Peterborough Oshawa to me is always the classic like Kitchener London's one thing but I think Peterborough Oshawa like talk about two teams that just hate each other and you know from top to bottom over the years and that's why I loved having Jeff Tuey on um, on a previous podcast go back and check it out if you haven't caught that one but I just thought it was great having a guy that you know grew up from a stick boy with the Pete's and you make it all the way up and you hate Oshawa <laughs> and then you come back into the OHL and who do you go to? The Gens <laughs> well and, and here's the thing. You, you talk about that hatred, and it's, it's a word that um, a, a friend of ours, well, let's give a shout-out to our good buddy Neil Aitchison, who's very well-known in the region of Waterloo, and I don't need to go any further than that. But he, he called, actually, he called my show one day, because I was talking about hating the Montreal Canadiens. He says, we don't need to use that word so much. We don't, you know, anyway, Neil's a, Neil's a lovable old guy, and it gave me some pause. So we use the word 
hatred carefully. But truly, when you talk about rivalries back in the day, that's how players felt about it. And, and Jeff talks about that. He said, you'd ride the bus from Peterborough to Oshawa. What are you, 90, maybe not 90 minutes, maybe an hour, whatever it is, yeah. about an hour. And, and it's quiet. And if, if I'm honest with you, Poker, I, I miss that, right? When I, when I grew up, there was a real nice Highway 7 rival in Kitchener with Guelph. Prior, there was the, well, maybe not prior, almost simultaneously, but in the early 90s, Kitchener-Sault Ste. Marie was a wicked rivalry, late 80s, early 90s, right? Oshawa-Peterborough has always been there. London-Sarnia is pretty wicked right now, and well, we, can, we can tell the stories. How many times did Warren Reichel walk into our broadcast booth at a Rangers game and say, I love the way you give it to those London Knights, those <laughs> blankety blank, right? Like Windsor, at least from Warren's perspective, hated the London Knights. I wish, I really kind of wish, I'm sorry, as much as I'm going to be reluctant to use the word hate, I kind of wish those things still existed, but it just, it really doesn't anymore because all of these guys know each other. They've played together before. They're texting each other before the games. I, look, I, I want you it's a game. I don't want you to hurt anybody. I don't want you to hate anybody, but damn it. If I don't miss the good old rivalries. I'm, I'm yes. Like, <laughs> of course uh, that, that was my heyday. And I mean, I played a lower level of junior, but I feel like, you know, even at the junior B level, when I was there, there wasn't as much uh, playing with group teams on the other or group teams with other players you're facing against like a lot of these kids in the O have like I'm talking like you know I didn't go to hockey U17 camp with five guys on the other team Um, I didn't play this summer hockey program with two guys on this team and I feel like that's where that hatred came from like I I remember playing if my coach told me you know I need you to stick your blocker out when this guy's coming down the wing because I was always on the bench so you stick your blocker out and punch this guy I would have done it and I would have tried to take out his teeth. When I did play, if somebody came and snowed me and I hacked their ankle, I was hoping I broke it. I wouldn't care in the slightest because I didn't know them. And at that point, he was that person was standing in the way of me winning. And I, I think I say that, and I think every man in the – well, 99% of the players that I played with would have said the same thing. Um, we hated the other team, and it just didn't matter. Even when there was trades happening, if like when I was in Hanover and we traded for a guy from King Carton, it took a while for that guy to actually become friends with people. Cause we were like, I hate you. You know, you need to go out and either fight someone on King Carden or do something on the ice that proves why I should like you. Because it took a while for me to like that person. First of all, it's Hanover and Kinkardine. Kinkardine. Second of all, folks up in Ottawa listening right now are going, what the hell are these places? These guys are talking about <laughs> Hanover and Kinkarden, the prides of gray and Bruce County. I love and it. We, st- we started off the podcast with talking about swing and wing them. So here we, <laughs> here we go. You're what, what is that here on North or no, it's Perth. Maybe. I don't know. No, it's uh it's Canada's West coast and it is gray. Well, gray would be Godrich. Yeah, and no, it's here on something. Here on just here. Here on east. Here on east. Maybe. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, guys. It's been a while since I've lived out there. I apologize. More Palmerston room. was Wellington County. That's all I know. It's what? Palmerston was Wellington. It's Palmerston, and yes, it was. It's Palmerston. It is what uh, it is. Wellington County, which is a great county. There's so many across this great province of ours, and we will be talking more about rivalries as this project wears on. If you've got one of your favorites, again. 
let us know via Twitter at underscore Chris Pope at Farwell underscore OHL. Shoot us an email, Farwell and Pope at gmail.com. Post it on the Facebook page, Farwell and Pope podcast, whatever. There will be more to come when it comes to rivalries. Our guest for today's show is one poker that I, I was a little worried that you'd be able to really contain yourself because as we mentioned already, a two-time Memorial Cup participant. But then after he left the junior ranks and went to the National Hockey League, he's, uh, he's collected more than a few Stanley Cup rings, and he's done so with a team that you quite admire in the NHL. And when, when you found out about all of this and we were talking in a, in a media room back in the days we could be at the rink, you, you got pretty excited, but you kept it together really well for our guest today. I think I kept it together extremely well. Um, that's just me, but, uh, he's just a fantastic, I was looking, trying to see if I could find the picture. Um, just a fantastic guy. Let's be honest. The picture of you wearing the Stanley cup ring, the Stanley cup rings. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the highlight of my life to this point. Um, I've been able to keep it together. I'm not a fanboy. I think that there's no cheering in the press box. Um, I say that. And if Steve Eiserman ever walked in the media room, I would be lying to you right now. I will be honest because I don't know what I will do if he ever walked into a media room. I don't know if I could talk to him or I don't know if I just sit there and stare at him until he made a complaint. I don't, I really don't know. We're we'll have to get, see. We're going to get a Steve Eiserman story in this podcast with our guest, but real quick, I have a very brief third hand, second hand Steve Eiserman story. So uh, one of my best friends, wives uh, had a, I'm trying to remember the name. Anyway, she needed to have brain surgery. I forget what actually had happened. Uh, it was done in London, successful. She's, she's well today. And after having undergone the surgery and the follow-up rehab and all the treatment, uh, she and, and my buddy, her husband, were back at, uh, at an event in support of the hospital to raise money for this particular kind of, of brain injury. It was some kind of tear. Anyway, uh, Steve Eiserman was the guest of honor helping to raise money for this particular hospital, this cause, et cetera. So one of my best friends gets to meet him. And so I guess there's a, there's a group of them standing around having a conversation like you would at a cocktail party yep. and overwalks Steve Eiserman. And my buddy's like, holy bleep, Steve Eiserman's coming over. And he gets to the group. And of course, my buddy's wife is oblivious. This is just the guest speaker of the night. And he, he introduces himself by saying, hi, I'm Steve and extending his hand. And my buddy's like, uh, yeah, of course you are. But he was very unassuming about it all. I love it. Yeah. And not just because you told that story. I got a similar one. Congrats to Shea Weber for playing his 1000th game in the NHL the other night with the Montreal Canadiens. I got a chance to meet Shea once out in Vancouver after the Predators were playing the Canucks. There was a bunch of players out at a bar going for beers, whatever. Long story short, I was invited late at night after dinner. I go in. There's four or five different players there. Not many people in the hotel bar. And they're all having a couple beers after the game. And I walked in with a friend. And first person you see is this towering, what, 6'4", 230-pound bearded guy. I'm like, holy cow, he is huge. Like a presence really in the room. And it's Shea Weber. This is the year after he put the puck through the net in Vancouver when he went on to win gold at the Olympics and he looks at me and he goes, hi, my name's Shay. No, sh- 
you know, like, yeah, no, really cool. Never heard of you before. What do you do? Like, (laughs) he was just a great dude paid for all the beers and we had a blast, but yeah. Hi, I'm Shay. Just like, hi, I'm Steve. He and uh, Jordan Tutu, Shay Weber and Jordan Tutu played together with the Kelowna Rockets at this level and remain friends to this day. So uh, pretty neat stuff. And, and this guy who's about to come on our show, and I'll let you introduce him, Pulper, but is, uh, is a guy that came through the, the city of Kitchener. In fact, my father used to teach him in high school for the connection there. And he seems like the same old guy. Every once in a while, he'll walk into a media room and says, hey, Mike, has your dad got a detention slip for me? Nope, you're okay so far. I think as soon as you come around the Rangers organization within like, I don't know, three games, you hear his name at some point for some reason because he is synonymous with this organization. He played or he played for the team, was the head coach and general manager of the team. Mike already mentioned two Memorial Cup trips, one as a player, one as a head coach. He played in the National Hockey League for Pittsburgh and Vancouver and then eventually became the director of of amateur scouting and one of the builders of one of the greatest dynasties in professional sports history. It is the reason I am wearing red today. And because (laughs) I thought it's time for me to put on a collar to match firewall. So our guests don't think I'm a lazy bum just sitting at home in a hoodie and a backwards snapback. (laughs) After winning four Stanley cups, count them four Stanley cups with the Detroit Red Wings. He went over to Dallas, where he's still looking for his first. But now Stevie's back at the helm of Detroit, so you never know what happens. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe McDonnell. Obviously, Joe, there are an awful lot of things uh, to talk about from your time in the Ontario Hockey League to where you are right now. This close, and I hold up my thumb on purpose, because this close to adding one of those special rings for the thumb this past spring in the National Hockey League. But I think really the story begins with you, uh, where you were born, a Kitchener kid who gets to play for and then coach the hometown OHL Rangers. What was that like for you? Uh, it, it was unbelievable, really. Just to uh, just to play for the Kitchener Rangers was was something that I dreamed of as a kid growing up. I remember going to the, the Ranger games when I was, you know, 11, 12 years old and watching Dave Maloney. He was, he was my hero back then. And uh, lo and behold, I ended up playing at uh, the same age. I think he did as an under under age, um, you know, not, not too much longer after I watched him play. So it was, it was surreal. really. You got to play in that Quebec tournament. There's lots of stories about how famous that Quebec tournament is. Was it as big a deal back then as it is now? That's funny. We were just talking about that yesterday with my uh, all my girls, and uh, I told them how big that Pee Wee tournament was. And uh, I remember sitting on the steps at the uh, Quebec Coliseum, uh, and I, I'm the same age as Gretzky, and uh, played against Gretzky all the way up there. And uh, he played a game, and they played Mexico, and they beat uh, beat Mexi- a Mexican team twenty five nothing. I think he had uh, it was like sixteen goals and. and eight assists or something, <laughs> something crazy. But uh, the building was sold out. Uh, and as I look back, um, my parents had saved the, the uh, program from that tournament. And I didn't know at the time, but the first game we played was, I think it was the Mississauga Reps. Uh, and it was my first year of playing out. I was a goaltender up until that time. So I was playing out and we played against Paul Coffey, who uh, ended up being my partner in junior. So it was uh, just funny to look at some of the names uh, uh, from that tournament back in the day. 
Okay, since we're on the subject of names, Joe, I, I couldn't help but notice when we look back at your time with the Kitchener Rangers, just on the blue line, you just mentioned Paul Coffey, Al McInnes, Scott Stevens. No offense intended, no disrespect at all, but how does a Joe McDonnell fit into a group like that on the blue line with the Kitchener Rangers? Well, I always uh, told Paul Coffey, and I still see him to this day. I told him he he ruined my career because he just told me to give him the puck and he'd go, and I had to stay back. So <laughs> I didn't get the offense like he did for sure. He was a tremendous player, and as was Al McGinnis, was unbelievable. I, I just missed uh, Scott Stevens. He came to our camp, um, I think, when I was a 19-year-old my last year, and uh, I can't remember the it wasn't that he didn't make the team, I don't think, but there was something going on with the midget team. They were going to Czech Republic or some, something like that. So he didn't play for us that year, but I, I did attend camp with him. What was the practices like with those guys? Uh, you know, you, it, it was good. And we, we tell all our kids, even uh, to this day, when you're playing with better players, uh, even in practice, it makes you a better player. You're just trying to keep up with them. Uh, you know, trying to to get on the same wavelength as as them, uh, thought process wise, and um, but but back then I think it was more of a a skating thing for a lot of guys. I was fortunate; I was a decent skater. Um, but some of the kids that uh, uh, that we played with, you just have to become a better skater just to keep up, even in practice. Coffee's famously wore uh, skates two sizes too small. I think. Did you ever? Did he ever try to get you to shorten up your skate size? No, he never did that. I think one thing I did though is we, uh, I didn't wear socks uh, in my skates and he did the same thing. And I probably copied that off of him. The other thing I, I had with him back in juniors, he had a knob on his stick that was like, it was as big as your hand. And it was uh, something that I also went with uh, uh, copying it off of him. Didn't work quite as well. <laughs> of all the names, one that we haven't touched on, but I, I happen to have on good authority from a, a former high school teacher of yours, Joe, that may have had a hand in occasional notes for attendance and stuff. I don't know, but uh, Paul Reinhardt and and you and Paul were pretty close. And I have pretty fond memories of, of that guy. That was right around my time coming into being a fan of the Rangers as well, but knowing how close the two of you were and, and the fact that I think some forget in the names that we've been talking about uh, led the Kitchener Rangers in scoring in his final year. He got moved up to forward, mind you, but still, I, I always thought derailed by, the, the injuries, obviously, in, in the pros. But what, what, what do you think Paul Reinhardt's healthy potential might have been? Uh, he definitely could have played a lot longer. He obviously was a, an excellent NHL player, an OHL player for sure. Um, but I think the injuries, uh, it took its toll on him for sure. But um, uh, I think one thing, I think moving up, uh, playing forward and then playing defense, and I, that might have sort of... Um, you know, change the way he played a little bit too. I think it's it's got to be hard doing that. Um, whereas you know, some guys are just obviously sticking to one position, and you're um, you're just going with that. So I think maybe going back and forth, but it, it made him versatile. Coaches loved him just because of that. Um, he was just a steady, steady player, and um, you know, just could have played forever, basically. I'm sure they weren't the first, but what was it like scouting his sons, Max and Sam? Well, again, I stayed in close contact with Paul and, you know, how, how good a person Paul was. So I assume that the boys were, were uh, just like him. And it was, you know, the apple didn't fall far from the tree with, with, uh, with all his boys. So a couple of them, I don't think have panned out the way uh, he had hoped them or, or the way the kids had hoped to, but uh, they were all excellent prospects and uh, all great kids. And, uh, you know, they had great parents. 1981, uh, Orville Tessier, 
comes in and, and there's a name that's in Kitchener Rangers lore as well uh, as the head coach. It's your final year with the club in the O and, and you make this, uh, I think still unexpected run to a Memorial cup, eventually losing to Cornwall. But can you take us through that second half of the season? Don Cameron always told me about was where things maybe started coming together, but, but that rather unexpected run that year. Well, I'm going to start at the start of the season. <laughs> he, uh, uh, he was a guy that just none of us, we didn't like him like one bit. And he, uh, he gave me the seat to wear. Uh, I, I remember Christmas time, I remember sitting there and we were in last place. Uh, Orville came in the room, he said, Mac Denell's, and I signed a, an underage uh, contract with Vancouver and, and bought a Camaro. And, and Orville came into the dressing room and he just gave it to me and said, I don't know where you got that Camaro, but you sure don't deserve it. And you don't deserve that C on your sweater either. And he ripped it off me and I gave it to Brian Bellows and it was, uh, we had a few older guys and it was like we just all banded together, um, you know, in the second half of the season as, uh, as history. We just uh, uh, just banded together as a unit and we just played for ourselves and um, it was, that was one year I think that's uh, just etched in my memory and I'll never forget it. It was, it was fantastic. Um, as much as we didn't like Orville, uh, he got the most out of every player. What do you remember most from that run? Um, I just think how we just banded together and it was like, we just knew we couldn't, uh, we weren't going to lose. We were going to do everything we could. Um, uh, it was just uh, every game you're going into. And, and we, I think we just, we knew we were a good team. We had a lot of young guys, obviously with Bellows and Larmer, Larmer, McInnes, uh, Eagles. It was just a team. And I think again, a guy that deserves a lot of credit for bringing those players in was, was Mike Penny, who uh, he was the previous GM to Orville when he drafted all those guys. And I think we have, we had seven, might've been seven rookies that went on to, to play in the NHL. So it was uh, a very talented group. We were young, but uh, the older guys banded together and the young guys followed along. And it was, uh, it was just a uh, incredible run. And the funny thing with, uh, with Orville too, I, uh, once I ended up scouting, uh, Orville was a scout for Colorado. So he, uh, uh, he'd ask me for a ride you now. And so I'd, I'd drive him from Calgary to Lethbridge or, or whatever. And, uh, and I, I'd always give it to him. I'd say, Orville, you know, we didn't like you at all. And he'd just chuckle and laugh and stuff. So it was, uh, uh, you know, as, as it went on, we, we knew what he was all about. Um, and then once I got to know him later on in the scouting business, he was a great guy too. It wasn't that same Camaro, was it? <laughs> <laughs> it was a rental Toyota. <laughs> How did you how did you overcome that kind of adversity, Joe? I mean, what, what you've got your your minor pro deal, you've got your Camaro, you've got the C on your jersey, then a coach strips it from you and gives it to another guy in the room. That cannot be an easy situation. No, it uh, it affected me for sure. But I think that's where you know adversity builds character, and I think uh, I'd like to think that uh, that I had a lot of character back then. I still do, hopefully, but. Uh, uh, it was just something where it just builds. Either it can either break you or it can make you. And, and uh, just thankfully it made me. And uh, I give Orville a lot of credit for that. Did you ever think in your playing days that you'd end up coaching the Rangers? Not in your life. I, I, I thought that wasn't for me for sure. And, uh, um, you know, I got the call from Tom Barrett one day. and Actually, I was buying a vehicle down at Stettelbauer Motors and ran into the president 
there and he he said why don't you come and talk to our coach and maybe you can I had nothing going at the time I think I was getting my real estate license he said why don't you come and you can help out with our defense or something and uh, so I, I headed down headed to Tom and he hired me and uh, once I went on the ice and uh, practiced with the with the guys and I was only I think 25 at the time so I was you know pretty pretty close to their own their age and uh, so I got along great with them and uh, once I started practicing with them, I thought, "Wow, this is this is sort of fun, actually." Then you then you sit upstairs and you're you're watching. Now it's in your blood that you want to win every game, uh, even though you're not playing. But it just it gets in your blood, and it it definitely did. And uh, once they named me head coach, it was uh, it was something I loved doing. It's pretty interesting. You talk about you know being in the process of getting a real estate license, maybe thinking about life outside of hockey when when your playing days were done and all of a sudden this coaching opportunity comes along and here you are today still involved in the game did that change your trajectory joe did that keep you in the game when otherwise you might not have stayed in it absolutely that's uh, you know i have to kick myself every day really to uh, you know my wife says i've never worked a day in my life and uh, she she's pretty well right it's uh, it's just been a a ton of fun right from the, the playing days you know they ended abruptly with an injury but um once I got back into it in the coaching part of it um and now you're still scouting 20 25 years later it's it's been incredible and just been a great run you mentioned being upstairs and even behind the bench still wanting to win every game but not having the same amount of let's say control as a player how difficult was that that's hard. You you take losses uh, probably more more than the players take them harder. I think uh, uh, you go home and you wonder, yeah, what could you have done differently? And the players they they're heading out. They go for a bite to eat after the game and stuff, and they they just worry about practice the next day. Is the coach mad or what's what's he going to do if we don't win? Um, things like that. But it, as a coach, you you really take it personally, and um, it's hard. It's uh, it's an up and down roller coaster ride, but. I'll tell you when you're when you're winning, and I go back to that Memorial Cup year that we had uh, lost in double OT. That that stung obviously, but uh, just to get there, the wins were were incredible, and you feel like you're on top of the world. I wanted to talk about that, Joe, and not to make the parallel uh, too stark here, but it's eighty eighty one as a player, you make it to the final, lose to Cornwall. Eighty nine ninety as a coach, and you just talked about that double OT loss, Eric Lindros and the Oshawa Generals, but. Again, I'm going to evoke the name Don Cameron. Always said, and it's hard to argue, that it was that Memorial Cup that put junior hockey on the map in Canada. Hamilton has to bow out because the record's awful, but you've got this barn, and you've got teams like Oshawa and Kitchener that through the OHL final, the memorable seven games into the Memorial Cup. As a coach, what was that like from behind the bench? Did you feel that same electricity as we as fans had taking it all in? Oh yeah, and I I think the league really really lucked out. They had the two uh, basically the two closest teams uh, in proximity to Hamilton to to make the uh, uh, tournament a, a success. And the sellouts that we had uh, uh, throughout the whole tournament were incredible. You know, even the the uh, seven game series, like you say against Oshawa, I remember that. And you know, up in the series, three games to one, and it was uh, just every day was a just a grind and it was it was something that you look forward to getting to the rink and you know how's it going to turn out today um you know unfortunately we ended up on the short end of the stick in, in the finals and then in the memorial cup but um 
every day was uh, was cherished. And I think, uh, you know, I still see some of the kids today, you know, Mike Turkia and Jamie Israel, Randy Pierce, some of these guys that uh, that played for me on that team. And we still, we hug each other and uh, say, what a, uh, what a time. And we'll just always remember that. It's interesting you talk about those hugs, Joe, real quick, because I remember when I was working alongside Torch and we were on the road in North Bay and he runs into Corey Banica, who played for Oshawa, against you and and when they met they hugged i'm like what this guy like through the seven game final beating you a double ot but the they they acted like the best of friends do you do you have those relationships even with players you played against or players you coached against in the league yeah for sure the the players you played against but it's sort of funny because the uh, the ones that i coached against some of them are are now scouts and Corey Banica being one of them. And uh, we razz each other all the time over that game and stuff. And they have more reunions. I'll tell you over that team in Oshawa. And I, and I happened to be there last year. I don't know if it was, the, I guess it was their, their 20th or, or whatever reunion it was, but I happened to be at that game. Like, Oh, what a downer that was. <laughs> and they were just ripping me. And then you got Bill Armstrong who scored the goal. He's now the GM in Arizona. So um, I see them all, all the time and uh, more, a lot of them and Freddie Braithwaite is another one. And, um, you know, it's, it's just their friendships. I think that you'll hold on forever. Mike mentioned the name, Eric Lindros. He's widely thought of as one of, if not the most dominant player in the OHL history, maybe what was it? What do you do coaching against a guy like that? It was, uh, it was tough. I'll tell you, obviously just the, the way he played, it was, he almost had the, you didn't want to physically stand up to him because he uh, he would run anybody over. So it was more of a, a thing. I tried to put a skill guy up against him, whether it be Jason Firth or Joey St. Aubin. I tried to keep uh, Mark Montaneri, who was uh, a physical guy, and he didn't care what size Eric Lindros was or anybody. He would he would challenge uh, anybody. So I tried to, to put Firth or St. Aubin against him, just hopefully the skill uh, – uh, skill would uh, outshine Eric, but uh, Eric was tough, that's for sure. And he was he was only a 16-year-old too, so he was he was dominant, uh, and he was right up until uh, his career ended. Unfortunately, uh, he played that game where, where it was just very physical and it caught up to him. There's a picture that's etched in my memory forever, and I suspect uh, very close to yours too, Joe. It's, uh, it's after that Memorial Cup loss. Uh, Mike Torquia is kind of slumped over the the bench or the, the boards at the bench. Uh, you're still standing behind the bench, obviously, after the Memorial Cup has been won by the the Oshawa Generals. But you can you can sense from looking at the picture like what effort had gone into getting to that point, and now all of a sudden it was over. Can you can you remember the the moment and the feeling when you saw that puck go into your net? Yes, and I hate every time. I, Sorry, I, I asked. Yeah, great question. Mike. <laughs> yeah, great yeah. Question. <laughs> That is, it's like, uh, you know, just ripping your heart out type thing. It was, uh, it was very difficult. Um, you know, it's something that you, you work for all year or, or, you know, sometimes it's for some of those players, it was their third, fourth year in the league. And you're trying to build up to that, that point uh, to have it come down to that. You know, you know, sometimes you think is it better to lose, you know, six to one than, than double overtime. It, uh, it hurt for sure. And I'll, uh, it's something you never forget. Heading into that double overtime, was there much said from the coach in the room? No, that was they. They were all exhausted. They were beaten. We were just uh, just trying to be positive, trying to pump them up, and uh, um, you know they gave everything. They they did everything they could do. 
from those disappointments and, and the feelings that will never go away, you've obviously had the ultimate success at the other end of the equation now too, as a scout, uh, multiple Stanley Cup rings from your time through Detroit. And we touched on the opportunity with Dallas just this past year. It didn't quite come, but one never knows. Uh, how did you make the transition from coaching into scouting? Well, that was another one. I said I didn't uh, didn't want to be a coach. Well, then once my coaching was done, I really didn't want to be a scout. And I, to be honest with you, I didn't even know what it entailed. Um, good friend of mine, again, a guy that helped me through my my whole career as a player, as a coach, uh, Mike Penny. Um, he said, "Why don't you why don't you scout?" And I go, "Well, I don't know. Like, what what do you got to do?" And uh, you know, he walked me through it and. Uh, uh, I knew it was going to be an awful lot of travel, and, and I thought, well, I got nothing else going. I'll I'll give it a whirl. And he he made a call to Jim Devilano in Detroit. I uh, went down and met with uh, Jimmy D and Ken Holland. Um, they offered me a job right there, and and uh, so I I tried it out for a year. Uh, they liked what I did, and I sort of liked the job, and and the rest is history type thing. So it was uh, it was an easy transition, but it was one that uh, you know I really didn't look like. Uh, like I wanted to do that, but uh, as it turned out, it was a great move. When you talk about those rings with the Red Wings, Jimmy D always comes up. He's a legend around those parts. What is Jimmy Devilano like? He is very passionate about a lot of things, but uh, hockey obviously being number one, and I'll tell you, close number two is baseball. Uh, he he has some close ties, obviously, with the Tigers, with uh, the Illiches owning there. But he was named, I think, one year as a senior senior vice president or something, just of the Tigers. And he loves baseball, uh, obviously loves hockey a lot more. But you uh, uh, you go out uh, with him, you go for dinner, go for breakfast, go for whatever, and it is hockey, 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 nonstop. Uh, he just talks about players. Uh, uh, you know, old players that uh, that we should all know. I've never even heard of. <laughs> he, he knows everybody, everything about the game of hockey. Uh, uh, he knows dates. He, he had season tickets with the Leafs forever. He, he got a buyout for that over a million dollars, I think, on tickets that he had uh, uh, that he had purchased there and stuff. But he's uh, uh, he's all business. He's all hockey. He's a, a great man. Again, I I owe him a lot just for for hiring me and getting me started in the in the scouting business. Given the pressures that are obviously associated with the industry in general, you're measured in wins and losses, and everybody knows when you do either of those things. But as the Detroit Red Wings were kind of coming into their own as an organization, Steve Eiserman, et cetera, and, and you knew the, the well, it's the goal for every team, but certainly Detroit had these opportunities uh, to win the championships that they ultimately would. Can you take us into into some of the discussions around uh, the, the tables when you're arguing for a player that you want the team to draft? There's your guy. I mean, how heated does it get sometimes? It, well, I'll tell you what, with our early teams in Detroit, you're, you weren't putting any young players into that lineup. It was uh, it was just a team of superstars that were, were older guys. But uh, funny, funny story with that is Scotty Bowman was our coach and we're sitting there. I think there was four of us and he's, he wasn't a Paul Coffey fan. So he's, he's uh, going around the room and he gets to me and go, what about Paul Coffey? And I go, well, I love Paul and he was my partner in junior and he just gives it up. Oh, well, you're biased then. Forget about you. <laughs> so it was, I had no say on the coffee thing, but he, we did end up getting rid of Paul, unfortunately. But um, as, as the years went on, um, 
you know, ultimately it's, it's the GM and the coach that make those calls. We can, uh, we can make our, our, uh, um, you know, just letting them know who we think, you know, it should be on the team should do this. Ultimately the coach has to win. Um, he's going to take who he wants. Um, the GM can get him in into the line or into the roster anyway, maybe not in the lineup, but uh, uh, the GM for the most part, Ken Holland, uh, in that case, uh, Jim Nell now in Dallas, um, they were scouts and they understand. And I think they see the, the process of a player, whether it being two, three, five years down the road. Uh, so they, they understand. And I think when we, when we do put put forth an argument, I think for a player, they understand that and they, for the most part, they go along with uh, a lot of things that I say. When it's the sixth or seventh round and Hawk and Anderson decides to throw out a name like Pavel Datsuk or Henrik Zetterberg, does the GM just say yes? Or is there much conversation? Because he seems to be the guy overseas for the Red Wings that has found some of those gems. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, he has a obviously a good track record. I think the, uh, the thing that, that uh, people don't realize too is we have, uh, you know, over here we had uh, two guys, myself and Jim Nill, uh, that would travel over to Europe and oversee, you know, guys that they see uh, and find some guys, too, that uh, that say our Swede Hawken didn't didn't like where we sort of enlightened them to that. So it's more of a – it's a team effort, I think, on that. When you have, uh, um, you know, us two, uh, Jim and I, that, uh, uh, that did cross over quite a bit and almost spent more time in Europe than we did in North America back in the day. Um, you know, it's sort of like a team effort where we get it. Uh, uh, Hawk and I think, uh, in credit to him, Pavel Datsuk was totally him. He uh, he found this guy. We never even got to see him because he played in such a uh, obscure place that uh, we couldn't even get to it. Um, so when once it hit the uh, sixth round or wherever we took him, he said, "What about this guy? We like him." And, and we're sitting at the table. Sometimes you run out of names. And, uh, you know, if we were that smart at the time, we would have taken him in the first round. <laughs> we ended up getting lucky. So it was, uh, it's a total team effort once you, when you do see uh, guys that do pan out. Back in the good old days, Joe, when we could actually go to hockey games and see one another around the rinks, uh, you found out that Chris was such a big Detroit Red Wings fan. And I, I don't think he's down all the way from cloud nine yet. He's probably still around cloud six or seven because Eight. <laughs> the, once you found out, of course, he's the Wings fan, uh, you brought in to share with him uh, the rings that you won with that organization. Obviously, the first is the most special, uh, but can you take us through what that's like as you go through a season as a, as a member of the organization and then when it's all said and done and the championship has been won, they present you with this, this token that you take with you through life. Uh, well, I, I think for myself, very fortunate. I think, uh, you know, the, my first two years, I basically had nothing to do with, with any of the, the roster there. Uh, when you got the Eisermans and Lidstroms and Federoffs, Shanahan's, uh, they were guys that, uh, um, you know, I had nothing to do with bringing them in. That was uh, our owner opening up his pocketbook and, and paying as much as he could to, to get as good a team as he could. And it's up to the GM to, to get the best players. So they were, they were, I was almost like riding along on their, their uh, coattails type thing and, and uh, collecting rings. So it was, it was pretty nice for those, those first two that, um, you know, 02, 08 were uh, uh, more special. I think the first one obviously is special because you're a, um, a Canadian kid and you're growing up and you want to win a Stanley cup. And, 
and I happened to win two back to back, and it was like, wow, this is this is fun. Like, well, let's keep this going. So, it, uh, 0208 had much more of a factor, I think, on the team and the personnel that uh, that we had on the ice. So those those two were probably more more satisfying, I think, for me. And um, all of them are special for sure, but I think the last two were were uh, more special, and uh, last year would have been really special. What what's the feeling like being part of a team when they go out and get Robitaille, Hall, Hasek? Are you just like, okay, here we go? Yeah, well, Kenny Hall and he'd always joke. He'd at trade deadline time he he'd just get a shopping cart and he'd just start shopping. <laughs> Let's go and he'd he'd buy whatever he could and it was and he did and he did a obviously he's in the Hall of Fame now. He did an unbelievable job in getting the the talent. Then you have to have. Uh, um, the coach that can bring all this together. You've seen a lot of good teams over the years that that don't win and don't win a championship. And uh, uh, but to have a championship team and then bring them to be a champion is is something special. And uh, you know, Scotty Bowman, I think, obviously is a legend, um, and he brought those guys together. And it was, uh, um, you know, so I, like Brett Hall says, you know, Scotty was the best coach that he ever coached. <laughs> Brett Hall was a piece of work, so it was. Uh, uh, just a, a great group of guys, and they knew how to win. Uh, the winning culture was uh, um, is something that you know. You look at the Leafs, and everybody thinks they have a, a Stanley Cup team. It's it's a culture that that has to be cultivated over the years to to become a winning team and get that winning culture going. And you know, the guys that we had in our dressing room were were unbelievable. Real quick, you mentioned Brett Hall. There's tons of stories of this guy from staying on the ice on his first shift until he got a goal and not coming off um, to some of his antics off the ice. Do you have any good Brett Hall stories? I have actually one from Dallas that I heard. Uh, he he uh, had a too many men on the, the ice and Ken Hitchcock told him to go serve the penalty. And Brett just sat there and, and uh, Hitch, Hitchcock said again, go, go serve that penalty. And Brett turns and no. I told you to go serve that penalty. So Hall goes over, serves the penalty, comes comes back under the ice, and Hitchcock's yelling at him, "Come to the bench! Come to the bench!" And Brett stayed out there, and and uh, he gets back to the bench, and Hitch said, "What? I I thought I told you to to get back to the bench." He said, "I thought I told you I didn't want to serve the penalty." <laughs> so he, he's just uh, just funny things. And we had uh, um, Sean Avery on our team in Detroit. Um, Sean is, you know, known for whatever, and and uh, but he had some great lines. So he, uh, Brett would hurry off the ice and he'd make guys move down the bench, get out of the way. I got to sit down, and and uh, Scotty said, "What are you doing? What are you like? Why do you keep pushing people out of the way to sit there?" He goes, "I want to sit beside Avery because I love what he says." <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, he's just uh, he was carefree. He he uh, obviously scored an awful lot of key goals, and he was he was very instrumental in uh, in our success. Did you have any guys like that in junior Joe as you were head coach of the Kitchener Rangers that just drove you nuts because they wouldn't conform to what you were trying to get them to do? Uh, well, Jason Firth probably is one. A tremendous player. What a player he was! Like his, his hands were were almost Gretzky like, uh, uh, but he just just wanted to do what he wanted to do, and uh, didn't matter what I what I said. He just you know he'd do the other thing, and so eventually I had to trade him. Traded him up to North Bay. Uh, Bert called me uh, Templeton, uh, 
He said, well, how do you handle this guy? I said, Bert, I said, it's up to you. I said, just leave him alone because he won't do it anyway. So he'll just drive you nuts. So just leave him alone. <laughs> uh, we, his names came up a couple times. And while we're on the topic of the Rangers again, Mike Torquia. Um, Farzi and I have got to spend a lot of time with him far well more than myself, but he's one of those guys I say all the time that there's not a former player that he played against or with, or maybe just know him that walk into that, uh, Kitchener media room and he was doing broadcast that wouldn't immediately just go torch, you know, light up and then give him a hug and they would have a chat. But he seems to be one of those guys that is just all personality. Was he like that in your dressing room as well? He was tremendous. He was, uh, you know, there was a year, uh, and I think he was still, you know, maybe 17, 18 at the time. Like if I, if you could back then, I would have named him team captain. Like he was uh, uh, just a tremendous guy in the dressing room, uh, off the ice, on the ice. All the guys loved him. Um, he was tremendous. And, uh, you know, if you could have named a goaltender captain, he definitely would uh, would have been it. How close was he to ending up where Furthy ended up a little bit earlier, but not for the same reason? Uh, as a trade, you mean? Yeah. Oh, no, never, never. He, uh, in his last year, uh, we were sort of rebuilding. Uh, I may be looking back, maybe I should have, to try to uh, try to get some assets back and sort of make the rebuild a little bit quicker. Um, but in the end, he, he was one of those guys you just wanted to be loyal to. He was loyal to, our, uh, to the Kitchener Rangers. I didn't want to trade him. Looking back, maybe I should have, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but then I might still be a coach and I wouldn't be good. So. <laughs> you, men- you mentioned loyalty. Um, Jim Nill, obviously a uh, good friend of yours, scouting with him in Detroit. He goes to Dallas, brings you along. What's that re- relationship like? Uh, again, right from – I played with Jim way back uh, uh, 1982 in Vancouver when we went to the Stanley Cup final. I was a, a black ace, but I got to know Jim very well there. We – we had to live in a hotel in, in Vancouver, so got to know him, uh, just stayed close with him. And uh, as it ended up, uh, he had nothing to do with me getting to uh, uh, Detroit and starting there. But uh, once I started, uh, we were inseparable. Uh, basically, uh, uh, he made me his right-hand man, and, and it's been like that ever since. We, uh, I think our thought process is basically the same on on uh, players and, uh, and basically on life. So it's... Uh, uh, just something where we just get along great. And, uh, um, you know, it's worked out well for both of us, I think. You talk about the pros, Joe, and all of our conversation uh, has glossed over the actual playing career, derailed by injury, but you mentioned Black Ace, Vancouver Canucks. Another one of your stops in the National Hockey League was the Pittsburgh Penguins. And it just so happens that a year that you played 40 games for the Pens, it's 1984, and there was some guy I think he wore number 66. I can't quite remember, but a pretty special hockey player, Mario Lemieux. What was it like being on that team? Well, we were a bad team. That was, uh, <laughs> that was sort of uh, something that you'd want to forget about, but and that's why they ended up with Mario in the draft that year. Um, but playing with him obviously was uh, a highlight of my career. Uh, and I also played a little bit with Gretzky in the, in the Oiler system and some exhibition games and stuff, but, um, playing with Mario for that that length of time, I think I I might have assisted on a, a few of his goals. I think and he just had to give him the puck and uh, and way he went. But he was you could see he was a special player. And um, uh, like I say, our team wasn't very good, so our season ended abruptly. So and that's uh, something where you when you play on a team and if you're uh, you get that winning 
going and you have that winning culture, I think it makes it a lot more fun. Uh, when you're losing, it's, it's, you know, you say it's a fun thing to do, play hockey, but if you're losing, it's, it's really not all that much fun. Did you ever find yourself just watching Mario? Yeah, quite a bit. He's, uh, uh, you know, it was just, you could, couldn't take the puck off of him, even as I think he was 18 at the time. Um, he was just, uh, he was a tremendous player um, just to watch him. And it was, you know, back then that was still a little bit of the rough and tumble days. So he, uh, uh, he was bringing in that skill set with uh, big and he wasn't a physical guy by any means, but the, the skill you could see was, was incredible. I'm pretty sure he would have just been coming off the Memorial cup that was played in Kitchener. So there's like the ties just continue to bind here, Joe. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, I think I was away playing at that time, but I, I had heard how he wasn't very good in that tournament. And we'll, they were starting to question whether he should be going number one. Like it's, <laughs> uh, it's, it's funny how the scouting uh, world lives and how, you know, media can sort of uh, make an impact on a kid and say, well, he's not a, not the best player in the draft. Well, yeah, I think he was, he, he might've had a bad tournament. Speaking of tournaments, this world junior tournament, a lot of people are questioning whether they should change it because of all the blowouts and other people, myself, I like to think that the scouts have seen these players. They, they know what they're capable of, the majority of them. Do you find that watching this tournament, is there still the benefit of watching this tournament for a scout, even when there are these blowouts of like 16-2? Yeah, I think so. It's, uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of debate on cutting it down to six or eight teams. Um, and it would make, for us, maybe the games a little bit better. But there are, are players in Switzerland and, and Austria that, that need to be seen and what a better place to, to watch them than in a, a tournament like that where you don't have to travel and um, you're right there and you can see them play. Uh, um, you know, he watched Marco Rossi. Well, he had nobody to play with, so he didn't look very good, but um, we all knew he was a good player and um, you have to then, you can sort of identify him there and then you do have to get on your, your horse and you got to go out and see him in whatever country he's playing in. Uh, Rossi fortunately was, was in Ottawa, but uh, there's a lot of players just like that where you, you can identify them. Uh, and again, the other thing that you have to remember about that tournament, it's more of a, I would say, a pro tournament for the pro scouts. Most of those kids are drafted. So uh, just an example, um, say on the U.S. team, uh, Matt Beignet's, uh is a high-end pick for this year's draft. Well, if he, he goes into that tournament and he doesn't play very good, you sort of look, well, he's only 17. He's playing against 19-year-olds. So you, you have to go back and see him. It, it doesn't really hurt his stock, um, whereas uh, most of the kids are 19. But if he's a 17-year-old, he comes in, he's so-so, you just go, well, whatever. But if he's 17, he comes in and he lights it up, then you say, wow, this guy's a pretty special player. So it's uh, a tournament that really doesn't help us guys as to evaluating talent for the draft for this year, other than to identify them, I think. Uh, as I say, it's, it's more of a pro tournament. Joe, you talk about players at this level, uh, identifying talent, trying to bring them into your pro organization. Now, of course, the Dallas Stars, but you're three decades plus from being a head coach and GM into scouting. What is it about the game at this level that keeps you so interested and, and so passionate? Because when we see you around the rinks, I mean, there's always a great conversation. You always seem pretty happy to be there wherever it ha happens to be. What is it that, that keeps that fire burning for you? Three decades? 
Oh my! I know. I'm sorry again, but it's the truth. Can't can't hide from that stuff. <laughs> I still remember when I was 16 as a an under underage coming in and, and playing a game in the auditorium. But <laughs> it's, it's scary. I'll tell you that. But uh, I, what I really like, I think, and what I see from from uh, just when I started scouting is the skill level, uh, the, and that's everything: the skating, the puck handling, everything. Uh, how much everybody has improved. You can go to a game. Uh, everybody at times looks the same because they can all skate. And if you can't skate, you got no hope. Uh, that's number one. So they're easy to pick out, but they're very few and far between now. Um, the skill level is is just incredible. And I don't, I guess you attribute that to, um, uh, I guess, all the hockey schools, all the, the one-on-one uh, things that the parents are putting these kids into, I guess. And um, it's more like a 12-month-a-year thing back when, when I played, it was, uh, you know, you just did your thing. I played soccer in the summer, never put skates on. And that's how everybody was. They just, they did other things. Now it's like almost like a business for these kids. How many times do you have to see a player, Joe, personally, um, to really get a good understanding as to what that player is? Funny thing is that um, I consider it myself as I have a decent eye for talent. So it's, when I see a kid the first time, um, I'll tell you, it's, I don't know what the percentage would, I'd like to check it out, but it, the first time that I see them, I have a, a pretty good idea. Obviously you got to see them more than once because you might catch them on a terrible, terrible night, but, but skill wise and things like that, I think you can see uh, right off the bat. Then you're trying to just dig into to other things, whether it's their, their defensive game or, um, you know, what they do away from the puck, things like that, that you, uh, you learn things about. I'd say on average, you're going to see a kid only five, six times a year. That's uh, that doesn't seem like a lot, but now I throw in with with all the guys that I have working for me. If if they're just in their area, they're going to see them 10, 15 times. So you add that on, you know, we're going to see a kid 20 to 30 times and have a pretty good idea on, on what they are. But you get after the first, second time you see them, you have a pretty good idea of, of uh, at least the skill set. When you go, sorry, Mike, just real quick. When you go to a game, are you going to watch one specific player, or do you have like five or six normally that you're keeping an eye on during that game? It, yeah, it depends on um, you know your area scouts are going to identify players for you, and, and some nights there might just be be one guy that they like. Um, so I'll just go in and just focus in on him. When you when you go to Europe and we we uh, have different tournaments, whether it's August. Uh, you know, five or six tournaments that we go to you're for the first two anyway you're watching everybody on the ice and it's it's almost overwhelming when you're sitting there and you got 40 kids in front of you and like holy cow like they're and they all seem like they can skate and then so that's where you're as the year progresses you're you're narrowing it down your your area guys are, are digging in deep on them whether it's their off ice stuff and and things by the end of the year you you sort of have it sorted out but uh, sometimes not, <laughs> but uh, um, it's it's a challenge. I'll tell you to uh, just to watch them, but it, you got to watch right from the start, right to the end of the year. And this is a tough year, obviously. I was just going to ask about that because all this talk about seeing guys multiple times a year, obviously, in in the last almost calendar year now at this point, you haven't seen anybody. You might be getting some some video of guys that are playing meaningful hockey over in Europe or something. How? How different has this past 10 months or so been? Terrible. Just terrible. It's uh, 
you know, it's all video right now for us. I know the USHL has some games going. There's there's a few going over in Europe, but for the most part, uh, none of us are traveling. You can't go anywhere. Uh, you know the OHL, the West, uh, Quebec's got a little something going, uh, but again, no scouts in the building. Um, so we're just, we're relying on video. And again, on the OHL, they're not even playing, so we can't even have video on them other than uh, last year's video. So it's... Uh, these kids grow an awful lot in one year and, um, you know, just even just, we do have a program where I can narrow down and um, again, not for the OHL kids, but for, for Europeans uh, where it, it takes uh, say one player and it just does all his shifts in one game. So it's not like you have to sit there for three hours and try to pick the guy out. Um, so it's like watching this world junior. I said to Jim Nelly yesterday, you know, this, this video scouting is awful. Like it's, they spend half a shift, trying to see who's on the ice, trying to make out the numbers and, and uh, trying to see who's out there. So it's, it's not ideal. Actually, it's very worse than ideal. It's, uh, it's terrible. It's terrible for the kids involved, especially in the OHL West Quebec. It's uh, uh, just not a good year. Take us to the draft table, Joe, because I imagine throughout the year, your scouts are sending you guys and I'm, obviously being completely away from it, I'm picturing like an Excel spreadsheet that you have on your computer and you're moving guys around. And this is, you know, you go into the draft and you're like, this is our order. These are the guys we want. And this is how it's lined up. That's how I envision it. How does it actually work? <laughs> well, you know, a lot of teams are a lot uh, different in the way they do things. Um, I sort of implemented the, the uh, way we did it in Detroit and it was Jim Mills way at the start. Uh, we haven't wavered from that at all. We'll have, uh, uh, we do each league individually. So the OHL, Quebec, last all individual and, and rate them in order. And then we'll have, uh, and same with Europe and the US and a goalie list. And we just rate them one to whatever, one to 50. In the end, we usually have about 160 names to go into the draft with. Um, so out of those different leagues, then we'll, uh, we sit down and we do an overall list of uh, this year it'll be 32 players. So we go one to 32. Uh, then after that, uh, once they're all gone in the draft table, then we start picking away. Uh, and I'll say to all the guys, okay, we got uh, um, somebody in the OHL, you know, is the next guy on their list, West, Quebec, uh, U.S. and Europe. So we'll have five guys and we sit there and just talk about, okay, who do we want next? And uh, we just start picking away at the list from there. And, um, ultimately, the you know I might have some guys fighting over over their area, and um, then it's up to me to to make the executive decision. Okay, we're going to go with this guy. We, you know, I obviously listen to everybody, but in the end, it's uh, uh, my things are on the line. <laughs> How does that feel? Yeah, your things are on the line, Joe. I mean, I know you got the four rings with your things, but come on here. <laughs> uh, well, it, you know, it's. Uh, I guess if you call it stressful, it's a, a little bit. That's our stress is that day. Um, and you just, you have to be very, uh, um, I guess, open-minded and listen to everybody and things like that. But you also have to be strong and uh, see what you like. And if, if there's something that you personally like, you, you just go with it. Can't be that stressful. Maskerin, Damiani, Camano, Delandria. It seems to be working well. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're all looking pretty good so far. But uh um, you know, I, I'd like to get all Kitchener players. I wouldn't have to leave home. <laughs> was it was it tough leaving Detroit to go to Dallas? Yeah, it was because they were 
Uh, the Illiches were tremendous owners. Uh, Ken Holland was great. Um, you know, and, you know, loyalty, we talked about that. Uh, that's something that, uh, that I firmly believe in. Um, unfortunately, sometimes uh, money talks. <laughs> so the loyalty, I guess you think of me as a player in that regard, I guess it just, uh, it was too good to turn up or turn down. And... You talked earlier, Joe, about, you know, the passion still burning because of the, the skill that you get to see these kids bring to the ice and the ranks night in and night out. And you also, when we were talking about Mario Lemieux before, referred to that rough and tumble style of hockey that was being played back then. From your time in the Ontario Hockey League, late 70s into early 1980s. I mean, that's like the wild, wild west, man, back in the day with those, with the league back then. How do you, do you, do you compare eras? Do you, do you look at the league now versus then and say, ah, I like that one better for any reason? Um, not, no, not really. I think obviously they were different, but uh, I think I like today for sure. It's, uh, you know, hockey is a game of skill. You have to be uh, tough and physical as well, but uh, um, Back then, it was sometimes it just got totally out of hand, and it, you know, it uh, made no sense really. And I can all still you go back to Orville again. We had a, a game in Brantford against the Alexanders, and it was everybody was on the ice. It was they were just going at it. There was blood everywhere. Orville Tessie was standing up on the bench, and I still remember looking over at him. He had his arms crossed. It was like, yeah, okay, let's let's get him, boys. And and, uh, and that was it. The next game, I think we. We didn't have a goalie, and um, or no, it was the rest of that game, I think. And, and he said, "You hold your stick in that way. You used to be a goalie." I go, "No, I hold my ha- my stick in the other hand. I can't play that." <laughs> so I, I think we threw Larmer in. I can't. <laughs> oh, so it was uh, just crazy back then. I think today's game is uh, far superior. All right, we've been talking for close to an hour, and I can't believe I've made it this far without asking about a certain someone and I think Mike knows exactly where I'm going he is the greatest hockey player of all time and that is Steve Eiserman. do you have any Steve Eiserman stories for me a complete mark for Steve Eiserman? <laughs> well um, Steve is a, a class act um, for sure and there's really no no bad stories I guess the the, the funny one I don't know if a lot of people know it too is uh, my first training camp I went in there and, and they always had the scouts coach so I was coaching his team. They have four, four teams broken up uh, within the whole organization. So Steve was on my team and, you know, I'd say, Eiserman, you're lined up. And he just, he was like, just going through the motions. Like he didn't want to be out there, didn't want to do anything. And I thought, Oh my gosh, this is like Steve Eiserman. Like, like this is a superstar. What's going on here? As I found out later was Scotty Bowman. I was going to trade him to, to Ottawa. And uh, there was two kids that Radic Bonk might have been one of them. And there was, I forget the defenseman, um, but that was the, the conversation was uh, he was making the trade and Scotty had full authority over Ken Holland to do this trade. So he called the owner of Ottawa and he said, I'm going to, I'll fly in to Ottawa and, and we'll uh, consummate the deal and we'll get it done. Well, Scotty leaked all that, got it all out there, but had no intention of getting on a plane and going to Ottawa. He wanted to shake Eisenman up and he did. <laughs> he, he again, he, he talked about Tessie and pushing the right buttons. Scotty knew how to push him, and he pushed Eiserman's buttons and turned him into a Hall of Famer. 
That's crazy. I would have been heartbroken. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I I just want to bring you kind of full circle one more time back to the hometown that you just referenced again very recently. You know, if if you could always uh, get the Kitchener Rangers players, you wouldn't have to leave home. We often see you, obviously, at the auditorium, which has been described uh, as a mini Maple Leaf Gardens back in the day, still looked at as one of the, the best buildings on the circuit in the Ontario Hockey League. As, a, as an underage coming in when you did, like, what's it like walking into that arena to start playing junior hockey? I was scared to death. <laughs> scared to death. I, again, you talk about rough and tumble. Well, um, you know, we had uh, the likes of Don Maloney and uh, Dwight Foster, uh, which were, you know, fairly tough guys, but good players too. Um, we had to go in and play Hamilton, the Fin Cups, and they had a team full of nuts. Like it was, it was crazy and it was scary. And it, <laughs> we were scared to death. And uh, we went in there and we'd get bombed like 15-2, 15-3 every time we went up onto the, the mountain arena there in Hamilton. Uh, we'd come back to Kitchener and we played a little bit bigger when we were back home. Uh, we'd only lose maybe 5-2, 5-3. But uh, uh, it was just terrifying to... Uh, to go in there as, at that age. As I look back, I was probably too young. I was I was only, what, maybe six years removed from playing goal uh, and one year removed from playing forward. They moved me back on defense as a in minor midget. So I was coming in, really didn't know what I was doing, and I shouldn't have been there. <laughs> but uh, um, obviously going into the auditorium with, with people sitting in the stands when you're coming out of minor hockey, and it's the building that you always went into. It was... I was just in awe. Do you still get some feelings going into that building? Oh, for sure. Every yeah. time you, you see the logo and you think you think back of all the uh, all the wonderful times that you had, you try to forget about the uh, the bad, uh, disappointing years and things like that. But uh, the good times, you never forget. Joe, it's always fun running into you at the rink. Obviously, we haven't been able to do that, but this is uh, tremendously generous of you two to spend the time with us. Thanks for doing this. Okay, thanks, guys. You have a great new year. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.